backroom politics. And good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It is Tuesday, which means it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio, live from Washington, D.C., your national capital region. Joining me as they do every Tuesday from New York, she is the former attorney for then presidential candidate Hillary Clinton in the great state of Ohio. She is the lawyer we know as Sharmila Charlie. Sharmila, how are you? I'm good, Justin. How are you guys on this blustery day? Uh, we're doing fantastic. Eventually spring will get to us at some point in July. Okay. Joining us exactly. from Northern Virginia is the former Undersecretary of Commerce who served at last count for different presidents, longtime Washington insider, longtime Senate staffer, and a very distinguished fellow at the Simpson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hey, Justin. So we have two weeks of politics to fit into one show. There's so many places we talk about. Jump right in. First thing we about. Justin, I can't, I can't understand you. You're cutting in and out and in and out. Sorry. Really? Yeah, same, okay. same on my end. Yeah, we're going to have to fix it. I think we've got a connection issue. Which we can fix. Uh, let me see if I can get this. Alan, uh, Alan Moore, give us a little recap of what happened with the whole phone situation. I of which situation? I think he's talking about Michael Cohen. Oh, Michael. Fair enough, Michael Cohen. Um, so, so, uh, Michael Cohen is g- gaining quite a name for himself. I'm not sure that he's enhancing his reputation as a lawyer. However, um, uh, he may be able to get a book deal, but I doubt he's going to get too many, uh, clients, uh, any new clients, um, in, in a really surprising move last week, uh, the FBI showed up at various doors, um, where Cohen sometimes works, uh, an office that he sometimes used in New York, um, a hotel uh, that he was staying at while some work was being done on his house, um, and I believe his house. And they, the, the FBI politely went in and, uh, with a search warrant, asked for uh, 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 written records, electronic devices, uh, and so on, and basically did a full uh, sweep of, uh, of, <laughs> of all of his all of his records, um, and uh, and that of course has triggered an absolute um, firestorm from the president, accusing uh, the FBI of killing attorney-client privilege, all sorts of uh, 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 exaggerated rhetoric in response. Um, yesterday in court uh, up in New York City, uh, the judge required that uh, he name, he, Cohen, or his lawyers on his behalf, name his clients. And the thought initially was, oh, my gosh, he's got a room full of clients. There's millions of records. And then leading up to yesterday, it came to be uh, pretty obvious that there were clients. And then the word was that, well, one is Donald Trump, obviously. Another is a now discredited uh, finance uh, chairman 
former <laughs> finance vice chairman of the of the Republican National Arnie. Committee, oh, with, for, who, who, who Cohen represented in a in a in a case of paying uh, 1.6 million dollars to to a woman who he had uh, impregnated. Um, uh, so not your conventional legal work. And then there was a mystery third client. That was that was it. And uh, they were try- they, they made a big effort to not have to indicate who that third person was, and the judge said, "No, sorry, you need to indicate who that person is." Um, and and, and it by the way, to be Alan, Noah, none other than Sean Hannity. Yeah. Can you can you guys hear me now? Is that much better? That's much it's better. Significantly better. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. Yeah. We're we're still working through some technical issues here in the seventeenth uh, floor penthouse here in the national capital region. So we're we'll get through that though. But let's let's go back for a second and because there's a lot to cover here. Um number one, let's start with the whole warrant itself. Um Sharma, you are a bar you are a bar admitted attorney in the great state of New York. The, the Don't forget the Garden State. First, yeah, oh, I keep forgetting the garden state. The high bar, the high mark, I mean, let's break this down to what's most common denominator, is you have, a, you have a U.S. attorney who was appointed by Donald Trump, only been serving since January of this year, get a file or a possible criminal complaint from the special counsel's office. This file lands on his desk. He goes through it and says, there's got to be enough probable cause here for us to at least go and apply for a warrant from a federal judge in the, in the uh, uh, Southern District of New York. And for the judge to issue not just a, a, a warrant, but a no-knock warrant on a lawyer, let alone the president's personal lawyer, and do it at his hotel, his office, and his house. How incredibly rare is this, and how much of a bar do they have to set in probable cause? That case would have to be pretty much bulletproof. Oh, yeah. There there was a very, very high bar for the FBI and the, um, the U.S. attorneys in the Southern District to be able to request – to request this warrant and the, the investigators in the Southern District, right? They had to have kind of a show specific, um, the specific pieces of evidence that they believed Cohen had and back that up very meticulously as in, you know, we believe that certain uh, items are contained on this Dell laptop, you know, measuring gray laptop, measuring eight by 12. We saw Michael Cohen on repeated uh instances entering the Regency hotel room carrying said laptop. Um, and then they also had to show that there was reasonable, they had reasonable belief that, uh, that Cohen would not, uh, would not cooperate with the subpoena and could potentially be destroying evidence. So the bar that they had to prove was incredibly high. And the fact that not only did Rod Rosenstein sign off on this, right? Because remember Mueller first directed that whenever, whatever he came up, came across in the course of his investigation, he said was outside the scope and referred it to Rod Rosenstein. Rod Rosenstein is then the one who sent it to the Southern District. And so right. for it, it passed multiple levels of scrutiny. And so for that to be the case, the evidence, and again, all Republicans or Trump appointees and or Trump appointees. So 
the level of evidence that they must have had needed to be incredibly compelling for this to have not even right. been raised as a or flagged as questionable. And for Dan it to be executed with such speed and such precision. And Dan Whitner, what's your take on this? Dan joining us here from Washington, D.C. Yeah, my first thought was they got something dead to rights, and Cohen wasn't acting as a lawyer. So uh, in which case, he's got a lot of other problems. But if, mm-hmm. if that's the case, it's, it's hard for me to believe that there isn't already a there there, and now they're just now they're just padding the file. They are helping in order to get that far. Justin? <laughs> Maybe he was hoping that Dan would go on a little bit. I can just I, say that I'm right. Uh, yes, in support, I, of what Dan, in support of what Dan said, I just uh, uploaded a, a I just sent an op-ed in to Audrey. Hopefully it'll go up on the site soon about how Michael Cohen is officially now the worst lawyer in America. Uh, but, but so, here, here's, I, the, here's so, the question. Sam Nunberg has been eclipsed. My, but, but here's my question. Is, n- number one, is it more so the fact that the that Rod Rosenstein and his own personally anointed former Rudy Giuliani partner, U.S. attorney in the Sovereign District of New York, issued the, you know, applied for a warrant. A judge issued a no-knock warrant. And, I mean, which is worse here? Is it the fact that Rosenstein... No, 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 Justin, Justin, wait, wait. The the guy you're referring to, the former Rudy Giuliani um, uh, partner, who is the U.S. attorney in the Southern District, um, he withdrew before he he had no hand in this. He recused himself. Oh, he did. So, oh, he yeah. did. Yeah. See, that that I did yeah. not I did not realize that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, the, the initial reports were, oh my gosh, this is Berman who who the president met with before giving him a, a, a temporary a temporary appointment um, because it requires the Senate approval. Um, and, right. and then it turned out that he actually uh, said, you know, I think I need to recuse in this particular case. So he turned it over to his deputies. So, I mean, there, there was also a Chris Christie sighting around this thing, I believe, defending the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I mean, let's be let's be clear about this. There's so many odd things about this, but which is worse, the fact that they executed a no-knock warrant on the president's private attorney or the fact that it's his own administration that's issuing these uh, applications for the warrant. Alan Moore. Well, as, Go ahead, yeah. Dan. Yeah. Yeah, Dan. As a matter of law, the, the, the fact that the, there is a belief that they could not just issue a subpoena to get this material, that instead it was a warrant and fear restriction of of evidence that is far worse as just a matter of law meaning that lawyer is not going to be a lawyer much longer if that is indeed the case as far as the the fact that the president's administration uh did this hey at least 45 
you know, surrounded himself with a handful of people that believe in doing their job and not just being loyal to to the man in the round room. Uh, that's actually something to that's a good thing that people are actually doing their jobs in spite of who the president is. So I, I don't look at that as a negative, but the, the lawyer is not going to be a lawyer much longer. Sharma, is this enough to get the New York bar? I mean, because there's already, que- there's been questions about whether or not or the extent of this guy's quote unquote legal practice. Uh, he's gone around much of the country saying that he's a fixer uh, not so much Donald Trump's personal attorney. Is, is there some substance that says that, hey, wait a minute, the reason why there is no attorney-client privilege is because this guy is not really Donald Trump's attorney. Is there some logic to that? Well, I mean, I think you're asking two separate questions. Um, and okay. I kind of cover this in my op-ed, but in terms of the New York bar, you can pick pick your poison. You can either go with the flagrant, you know, breaches of legal ethics uh, that he admits to freely when he talks about, oh, but I entered into these agreements without Mr. Trump knowing anything about them. I just did them on my own, but I bound him to them. That's idiotic. That is literally lesson number one in any legal ethics class. You cannot, an attorney cannot make decisions for their client without their client's knowledge or consent. Literally anyone can tell you that. Or you can take the fact that he also just freely admits to committing crimes when he talks about the fact that he just says, oh, yeah, I used a home equity loan to pay off Stormy Daniels. Did you write bribery payment to porn star in your loan application? Because if you didn't, you literally just admitted to all the elements of bank fraud. So pick one. Right? Like, which, which do you want to be disbarred for? Because it's, it's, a, well, it's but, a rich tapestry. But even, but, but even beyond being dis, but your, disbarred, while I was kind of flippantly saying that he's a practicing law Who's going to be his client now? The client privilege really doesn't really stick. Well, it's unclear I mean, but, to me who's going to sign up other than maybe like a, a trust somebody who wants a will. <laughs> what else would you be doing? So, Marketing tickets. So I and, think, and even then, I, only if the will includes payments to his secret children and his secret family in right. Canada. Right. Alan Moore, go ahead. So I, yeah, I think I might have the answer to that to that question because. You know, much has been made of the fact that that in uh, FBI director, uh, former FBI director Comey's uh, conversation and in his book, he talks about sitting down with Donald Trump and feeling like he's meeting with a mob boss. It reminds him of organized crime prosecutions that he, as a as a younger lawyer in the Southern District uh, U.S. Attorney's Office in New York City, uh, experienced uh, 20 some years ago. So. I'm just taking that picture and expanding it to include attorney, in quotes, Cohen, who is the fixer for the mob boss. So he's not usually practicing law. If you look at the kinds of threats Cohen has allegedly made personally, directly to different people who he was confronting, he threatens these people. He threatens them with harm with ruination, um, not unlike what Stormy Daniels described happened to her in a parking lot in Las Vegas. This isn't the practice of law. This, this is being the, 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 count, the counselor to, uh, to, to mob bosses. So Cohen may have a future in this kind of 
so-called law. As a lawyer, he's a disaster. He, but but most, he, he, first of all, he doesn't have any clients. And then supposedly the client, Donald Trump, um, that, that has sustained him, one, hasn't paid him enough money so that he could come up with 130 grand to pay off a porn star. He had to use a home equity loan. Um, and and <laughs> so he's not exactly rolling in dough. Uh, he oh, used to own a whole bunch of taxi medallions, and that appears to have gone south for him oh, thanks first. to Uber. Um, it, it, right. It's a really curious, strange history here. He's never been a conventional lawyer, and I would say will never be one, whether he's disbarred I mean, or I mean, not. The, let's be, well, let's be, let's be clear. Way, this guy is no Tom Hagen. I, again, in my op-ed, really? I talk about that. And I say, <laughs> even Tom very Hagen, good. when he introduced himself to people, introduced himself as a lawyer with a very specialized practice. He didn't just come in and say, hey, I'm going to put a horse head in your bed. Right? That's the difference between Tom Hagen and Michael Cohen. <laughs> but actually, I, I can't, believe, I can't to, believe we're to, talking about this. To jump onto to jump onto Alan's point, um, even if it's actually hard for, and Dan can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's actually hard for uh, law enforcement to try to circumvent any privilege that exists between Cohen and Trump by using the um, by using the rationale that Cohen was not giving legal advice. That's actually the hardest way to overcome privilege because often legal advice is commingled with business advice. So you can say in a sentence, you know, my, my opinion is you should do X, Y, Z with this, you know, this counterparty who's being, you know, who's not giving you what you want. The contract says ABC. And so there you have an example of, you know, there is legal advice commingled with business or practical advice. And so that actually is that's still sufficient legal advice to re, to retain privilege. And so even if Michael Cohen wasn't acting as a lawyer 100% of the time, the fact that he acted as a lawyer in some instances, such as you know drafting contracts and providing legal advice that way, does mean that privilege still applies to a lot of those communications. There are other exceptions that would be a lot easier to prove. Right, but Dan Littner, we've heard other players in this administration in this investigation, you know, we've heard even Don Jr. has tried to claim attorney-client privilege for whatever reason, and that's been thrown out. Uh, is, is this a sign of a possible weakness that they're getting closer and closer and the noose is possibly coming around the administration's neck a little bit? Is it tightening? I mean, that's hard to say. Uh, I mean, I've been of the opinion that clearly a there there. It just Mueller runs a tight a tight ship, so uh, we don't know. It's worth noting with clarity that this is separate from the Mueller investigation. Mueller identified it and handed it off. But in this case, and this is to Sharmila's point, the easiest way to get to this point going after Cohn is when he is no longer acting as a lawyer or a business professional, but party to a criminal enterprise. That is how you get rid of thing at all related to it. That's, and there was a great piece in the post that Mueller, when he worked on the John Gotti case, uh, going after Gotti's lawyer, and that was how they did it. 
the as a lawyer, you cannot continue to forward a criminal enterprise in that fashion. You can do all sorts of things, but once you are knowingly abetting a criminal enterprise in the, in your actual actions as a lawyer, then you are part of that enterprise and no longer an attorney. That's where you get. Dan, to. let me ask. You, so, hold on, Dan. Let me ask you this question. Dan, let me ask you this question. Number one. It, it, are you saying that there's a possibility that we could see something substantial like RICO charges against Michael Cohen, number one? Is that a possibility? I mean, there are a zillion possibilities. I mean, if the campaign finance thing were knowingly engaged in between Donald Trump and Cohen with the full intent and knowledge that they were attempting to circumvent campaign finance laws, that's enough. Okay. I mean, that's... Number that, two, let, that, me ask, let, let me ask this other yeah, question. Well, whether, okay. whether, whether or not the president knew, it's a, it, 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 it's a violation of law. Right, right but, but here's the other question. Here's the other question. In order to get, in order to get the that's what you have to... You you have to have you have to be party to it. So if a lawyer is breaking the law by himself, that doesn't necessarily waive his client attorney client privilege. That's the difference. Correct. All right, if but let me let me ask this. Client let has me, to approach the me, attorney for advice in committing an ongoing fraud or crime. All right, but again, let me ask this other question: Is is there a fear or is there a potential? that even though separate from the Mueller investigation, Cohen possibly has documents that could directly tie to the president, and this could be the the line item that brings down the administration. Who knows? I mean, there could be a yeah, wiretap well. involved somewhere that came up with all the people that have already flipped on the president. There could have been something that is some other criminal activity that both Cohen and Trump were involved with, that that's what triggered it. There are, there's, because of how large the Trump organization is or, and how many fingers they have in questionable enterprises, it, it's almost impossible to list the possibilities. So the answer is, yeah, it could be. But let's, and let's remember the, the, the... Right, and it, yeah, it, could, it could relate to the, the Trump organization well, generally's well, business and not be... As directly related to the president. Yeah, and more. Let, go remember ahead. Dan. Yeah, remember Dan's point earlier that Mueller passed this off. Mueller's conclusion about this evidence was, this is powerful, important stuff. It's outside my purview, but it needs to be passed on, and it is so significant that it led to a warrant, and if you you know pick your term, uh, a visit, a raid. Um, uh, on these uh, on these locations to take a lot of material that the, there may well be protected material in terms of attorney client privilege. And that's an ongoing debate in the court among the government, uh, the, the, the lawyers for for Cohen and for the president um, on whether the prosecutors in the Southern District of New York should have unfettered access or whether there needs to be a screen a special master, a, a team of lawyers unrelated to the case who would go in and say, oh, yeah, this stuff 
you can't look at. This is clearly covered by attorney-client privilege. This stuff, however, is not covered, and this is fair game. Um, that's a big question right now that's out there. And so there could be some really damning stuff in terms of, of Cohen and the president, and we may never see it because it's, it, it, it has been filtered out by a third party or even by the judge herself saying attorney-client privilege can't go there. Uh, and by the yeah. way, the president uh, really better be hoping by the, by Cohen way, actually practiced law at some point. But let's be clear <laughs> about point. one thing here. Let's be clear about one thing here is that uh, the judge yesterday, I mean, this ties into what you were saying, Alan, is that it was the judge yesterday that kind of slowed the steamroll of uh, Trump's the Trump's new legal team wanted to view the records and the judge said, yeah, no, which is also part of the same hearing where we also found out in fact that it was Sean Hannity who was this mysterious third client. Uh, Let's talk about that for a second. Does, does the fact that Sean Hannity was revealed as a third client of Michael Cohen, number one, do you, Alan Moore, do you buy his excuse that he gave last night saying he was never a client of of Michael Cohen, that he he knew Michael Cohen on the periphery and he and he asked him for some friendly advice and that was the extent of it. Do you buy that? Well, so there's a couple of aspects to this as Dan and, and Sarah have pointed out. Either Cohen may be the worst lawyer in the history of the world, or as Dan says, he may not even really be a lawyer who doesn't practice law, so it may be that Sean Hannity was talking to his old friend, Michael Cohen, who's not really a lawyer or is the worst one ever. Um, uh, but, but for Hannity, his, his exposure, his problem is trying to be on the, have it both ways in terms of his role as a, pardon the expression, please, this is heavy duty, quotes in bold, a journalist, um, where he works for Fox News uh, days earlier he was trashing the Justice Department and the FBI for way overreaching in going in to take material from, uh, from Cohen from these multiple locations, knowing, of course, nothing about what was in the warrant. Um, not that that would matter to him, but he is trashing them, but sees no reason in the course of talking about it with, with aggressiveness and powerful opinion no duty on his part to say, oh, and by the way, every now and then I've, I've reached out to him for a little bit of advice. I've never retained him. Uh, you know, he's, at one point he said he's never paid him a penny, but then the other times I've heard, I saw, I saw another quote, we said, oh, I might give him 10 bucks every now and then. I mean, it's not that, I don't know that that from, from my understanding, it doesn't really matter. Um, if you are seeking legal advice from a lawyer, um, you have some reason to expect attorney-client privilege. If that's the case, if that's your relationship and you try to be a journalist and you it, stick your nose into this stuff and express powerful opinions, you have a journalistic duty. It's not a legal duty. It's a moral duty to disclose, to simply say, I'm talking about this stuff. By the way, you should know. I know this guy, and occasionally I've asked him for some real estate advice, but he's never really been my attorney. You have a duty in, in the journalistic world, which is seen as 
by many is totally unethical, is up in arms over this because it's such a clear violation of the standards that most journalists live by. Will it matter to Hannity? Probably not. Will it matter to Fox News? Harder question. Will they, will they scold him? Will they suspend him? Will they, take, will they do anything to him? Will they school him on, on what actually uh, journalistic ethics are, journalistic behavior is? I'm not holding my breath, but it's a whole side issue that's created a lot of consternation Right. In the headquarters me, of Fox News. Right, but the, but the one thing, Justin, I have to jump in and say, look, the, the one thing that makes Hannity's kind of excuses much more unrealistic is the fact that Cohen identified him as a client, right? Cohen was tra- like kicking and screaming trying to not identify him, and yet he yeah. ultimately was compelled to. If Hannity was just a friend that he occasionally gave legal advice to, that in no way would constitute a client, right? I have a ton of friends that I will occasionally, if they ask me for advice, I'll say, yeah, this is what I think, or you know, here's what I do. I never call him my client. My client is the one who pays me and engages my services specifically uh, as an attorney. We have a retainer agreement. They either employ me or they, they sign a real retainer in which I agree to represent them as an attorney. But just normal, that's normal. much more serious hold on, hold on, than just hold, saying hold – that, hold that. I don't have a file on Justin for all the horrible things he's told me he's done. I don't have a file on him. (laughs) But hold on. Let me jump in real quick because I want to go back to Sharmila's point. I mean, I have uh, have one attorney in particular that I have a $1 retainer with or a lunch retainer with that he is my attorney of record. Uh, would I be considered a client? Has he given me legal advice? Yes. Have I retained him? Yes. I mean, and I I don't want to get too much in the weeds, but there's a very big difference between the story we're hearing from uh, Sean Hannity on this, because now Sean Hannity, who just had Michael Cohen on not 48 hours before this was revealed, and now you've got Fox News has a credibility problem with their top line dog. So, I mean, is this a situation right. where there's a kind of a gray area of is he a client, is he not a client? Could Michael Cohen could Michael Cohen be just exaggerating the fact that he is a client just to get name recognition and seem important? Justin, I mean that that is beyond even allowing for the president fact that Michael of the Cohen United is the worst lawyer in the world. <laughs> Yeah, even allowing for the fact that Michael, Com- Michael Cohen is an incompetent attorney, he knows how much heat and notoriety is on him right now. For him to just arbitrarily identify an incredibly famous person and you know, allow this firestorm to engulf a third person is absolutely insane, even for someone like Michael Cohen. I think that the reason he was compelled to reveal it is because there, there is a significant legal relationship there. This isn't just a, oh, we go to lunch sometimes. You know, he buys me lunch and I give him an advice. There's, Dan, what do you agree? There's much, be a lot more than that. Actually, well, something else just dawned on me for all of Sean Hannity's uh, comments. Um, and, Sharma, correct me if I'm wrong on this. If Sean Hannity is saying that Cohen is not his lawyer, doesn't that constitute a waiver? Therefore, nothing is protected by attorney-client privilege. Oh, a waiver of privilege? I don't know if that actually counts as a waiver of privilege. I mean, if he's saying he's not his lawyer, then there is no attorney private privilege, so everything is discoverable that's occurred between the two of them. Like, thanks, Sean. 
Well, I think, I think that you would have to testify to that in a, court, in, a court, in a court of law. I don't think just saying it out loud on the TV counts. But you uh, could be right. I, I, I think, know. yes, if you waived it in a court of Sherlock. law. Sherlock, I don't know. I mean, you could, take, you could literally take that videotape into a judge, any judge there at Judiciary Square and say, oh, look, he just he said it's not my attorney, so he's very privileged. Here's all the files. I mean, I mean, Bill Clinton said he didn't have sexual relationships with that woman, but he said something different under oath. Yeah. Anyway, okay, let's. um, I mean, let let me let me let me me just add one other reminder because I because Charmelle's point or her the earlier point was was really important, and that is that the that the lawyers for Cohen were were trying so aggressively and hard to to avoid providing Hannity's name. One of the reasons that they were doing that was because Hannity reportedly was saying to them, oh, my God, don't get my name out there. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. So for this, for this non-client to say, no, don't name me, and for Cohen's lawyers to say, don't name, don't name, one of his three clients in the entire world, the entire universe, um, is – is is hugely telling of the fact that there's more here in that relationship than meets the eye. And it may be, as you guys have described, so he didn't pay thousands of dollars to Cohen, but they had some kind of a barter deal. You give me some advice from time to time. I'll take you to dinner. I'll introduce you to some people. I'll help you out. Um, it, it's, uh, we're going to know more about this one. Um, before we're all done because there's something in that relationship that everybody tried to hide and there has to be a reason for that that's embarrassing. Considering Fox's history as well as Cohen's other clients, I think the real person to watch here is whether or not Sean Hannity's spouse retains counsel. That might be the real question. Uh, this is obviously something we're going to be watching very, very closely. Uh, before we close out this segment, because we're going, to, we got so much to get to. Around uh, the horn, does the Sean Hannity revelation from yesterday does that take him off Fox News? Alan Moore. No, but I think there'll be some Sherman kind Charlie. of scolding. No, unless it was a chaos, maybe. No. Nobody thought Bill O'Reilly was going to be gone, so Sean Hannity's next. (laughs) Okay. Let's move on. Let's talk about the other 300 million pound gorilla in the room over here by 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, and that is the revelation or the release of James Comey's book, uh, A Higher Loyalty, the former FBI director fired by Trump uh, back in 2017, has come out with a book and had some not knows, some ni- nice things to say about Donald Trump. And this alludes back to one of the items that you pointed out earlier in the show, Alan Moore, is uh, one of the things that was revealed was when he had dinner with him, it was like sitting down with a mob boss. He runs his organization like a mafia. Uh, there is a almost an omerta code inside the White House that is being driven. Uh, at the same time, as, as segments and excerpts of the book, A Higher Loyalty, came out over the weekend and, and late last week, 
Uh, Donald Trump did not hesitate to get on Twitter and do everything from call him a uh, a liar, a leaker, uh, all the way to even referring to him as a slime ball, which I thought was a little extreme. He's also gone after uh, Rod Rosenstein. He's also gone after just about everybody in the higher echelons of the Department of Justice and the FBI. And here we are today. One question is, number one, let's let's look at the man Comey himself. Alan Moore, regardless of what you think of Comey, does Comey still have credibility in this entire narrative as far as what he's saying and how he's saying it? So, yes, he has credibility, but but because he, he was – in key places at key times. And he also earned credibility over a lifetime of service, including some pretty courageous stuff he did in the the George W. Bush administration. But my troubled uh, conclusion or observation is that I, I, for one, that he had waited um, and not come out uh, now, I think it becomes a distraction. Um, he's talking to Mueller. He has spoken to Mueller. Most most of what he is saying here is has already been out in, in the public domain, with one exception, which is uh, which I mentioned because it, it, it's such an absurd irony that the man. Jim Comey, who made some controversial decisions about public statements about the, the, the so-called Clinton email investigation, both in July of 1916 and then in, in, in October of, 19, uh, about 20, of, 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 uh, of 2016, and then, and then in, in the first week of November of, of 2016, I believe may well have turned the result of the election. Hillary Clinton believes that there are plenty of things that one can point to. This is one of them that might have made the difference. So he he is an enormously powerful force in American history by almost by accident. And the Democrats despised him and hated him for taking those controversial actions, which were unusual for somebody in his position and may have turned the election. And so having done that and, and arguably helped uh, uh, elect uh, President Trump, he certainly didn't harm his candidacy and may well have made the difference, is turned on by the president and, and vilified. Now, how bizarre is that prompting many, many Democrats to come to Comey's defense, even though they hate him for for his uh, his historic role and, and what he did, it's just bizarre how, how uh, Comey looks around and everybody wants to talk to him, but I'm guessing that a lot of people aren't really going to trust him. I just wish he had waited with his book. But the most interesting revelation to me was when he said that back in July. They were so sure that Hillary Clinton was going to be the next president that he felt it was really important to come down. And this was true in October as well, when he reopened the investigation and announced it. 
that he didn't want to harm her legitimacy to to she was going to win so what you don't want is a secret investigation that had it been public might have changed people's mind and he acknowledges that that likely uh crept into his thinking and that's amazing i mean it is really an extraordinary thing to 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 to, right. to grasp the thought that that might have made the difference in a presidential right. election. Wow. So, Dan Whitner, looking at what we're hearing about Comey and what he's written in his book, which will be released, I believe, tomorrow. Um, I think it's out. I think it's, is, I think it's today. Anyway, it doesn't is, matter. Did it come out today? Is it out today? I think so. Uh, and it, I think so. Okay. Uh, but but now that the book's out, though, uh, and now that Comey is speaking, is is Comey actually giving the Trump camp and his supporters ammo to say, okay, this guy's just this guy's proving what we've been saying all along. He's an opportunistic. Uh, as the, he's an opportunistic leaker, liar, slime ball, who's just trying to cash in after we exposed him as being nothing more than the worst FBI director in history. Dan Lipner. <laughs> oh, uh, it, was, well. it, was a, it was that a jump ball or directed to me? Uh, so no. that was directed I mean, at you. <laughs> he, he, he is obviously not the, the worst. FBI director in history. That's a non-starter, and I still stand by my position that I always, I always thought Comey was bulletproof. I still think so. Um, thought, I mean, I obviously haven't read the book yet, but some of the stuff from the interview, I thought he could have taken the higher road a little bit better than he did. However, 45 is is hardly on the highest road there is anyway. But yeah, I'm kind of an Alan Kemp here, but the problem is the you already have the camps that are set up. The the Trump loyalists who could not care less whether or not the sky is blue or the earth is flat, they they see everything as an affront to to the Donald. So the question is, comes of and which opinions can still be swayed and the real question of the connection with the legitimacy of the Mueller investigation and people seeing it as legitimate. While public opinion of Mueller seems to have moved, most people think that the investigation should be allowed to continue and run its course, not the least of which are Republicans in the Senate and at least the couple house. So the real question and the Comey side show because he's started to use some choice words that undoubtedly will help sell books, but might not help a legitimacy argument. Charmel? So I couldn't understand a lot of what Dan said. It was breaking up again. But um, what I will say is that I don't think that it validates any sort of Trump administration points, you know, the way – James Comey is going about this because for the first two months Donald Trump was in office, he was calling James Comey a stand-up guy. And so I think that you still have a lot of cognitive dissonance there where, you know, the president thought James Comey was the bee's knees until he realized the Russia investigation was actually legitimately a serious threat to him and suddenly turned on him. So I think that 
I think the president's uh, views have very little credibility, actually, in this in this investigation, and it's not it's not going to sway people one way or the other. And by people, I mean the public. And and Alan, you know, of course, anytime you talk about anything happening in Washington these days, there's always conspiracy theories. Uh, but and and we usually don't like to you know throw into them or give them any sort of uh, legitimate access, but there's one that did come. What's that? What was that, Dan? Scooter Libby. Scooter Libby. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, we'll get we'll get to that. We'll get to that, Dan. Hold on. I know you're chomping the bit. Relax. Relax, Dan. Calm down. Um, but I'm worried. I've heard a couple of people say that this might have been a calculated book release timing and presser that uh, that there might be something in the book or in the Comey interviews that he's done a lot of and is continuing to do uh, in support of the book that might even help Mueller maybe either give him a, a roadmap, a, a, uh, a blueprint for looking down another angle or another road that they could take as far as the Russian investigation or the investigation, I should say, out of the special counsel's office. Do you give that any validity? No. The only, you said a calculated uh, decision. The only calculation in this decision, in my estimation, um, is the calculation of the, the royalty, the, the fee that Comey was paid to produce a book by this point in time. I think that left to his own devices – he would he would not have been in a hurry here, um, but it's we're talking millions of dollars to a guy who's been uh, been out of regular employment, um, and he'll get paid for speeches and he'll sell a lot of books. What he'll do down the road, I don't know. Um, I don't think that Mueller needs his book. Mueller has talked to Comey numerous times. They are longtime friends. Comey has been cooperating with the Mueller investigation. So I, that there's nothing that Comey can do in a book that, to help Mueller that he can't do behind the scenes or hasn't already done with, uh, with, with Mueller. So I just, I just, you know, I, I just don't find new revelations here, particularly I was, I, I was not impressed with the job that ABC did. They had five hours of tape and they had to reduce it to about 45 minutes for you know, 48 minutes or whatever it is for an hour television show. And it was kind of choppy and disjointed and, and um, maybe someday they'll put all five hours out, but who will, who will actually want to sit down and watch it? But I, I don't I mean, think I mean, there honestly, some honestly, other Alan, do you I want to watch, Alan, do you want to watch George Stephanopoulos and James Comey for five hours straight? I do not. I do not. But Thank I would you. love somebody Continue. else. I'd like another. I'd like some other uh, crazy people who would watch the five hours to look at it and say, "Oh yeah, you know, actually, you should look at this eight minutes, and you should look at that four minutes uh, along with uh, with with the stuff." There was not. There was. I wasn't sitting there with a 
with my jaw dropping, thinking, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And even this, the, the, the item I mentioned before where Comey acknowledges that it may well have been creeping into his mind that he didn't want to harm the Clinton presidency. So he did some things that he now kind of wishes he would have done differently. But even that was, was leaked out a few days earlier. Um, so the, the, the rest of it, I mean, the mob boss stuff, that was leaked out ahead. I, I find that kind of interesting given his experience. Most of our experiences with mob bosses came from watching Godfather 1, 2, and 3 and a couple of other movies. So we don't have the the the, the hands-on experience. So it was kind of instructive, but it's just an opinion. Um, and, you know, and, it, and, and then Cohen sort of fits, fits the... Uh, uh, the uh, the the role of the of, of the right hand uh, uh, counselor counselor who 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 threatens and and and, and fixes stuff. Sure, we can well, chuckle about he's, that he's, anyway. Yeah, yeah. He's like, he's like Michael Cohen is basically Tom Hagen and Fredo combined into one person. <laughs> okay, well let's go back to Kobe for a second. <laughs> Let's go back to Comey for a second, if we could. Uh, if you look at if you look at the revelations that could possibly come out of Comey's book, uh, going back to the question I just asked Alan, do you think there's anything in there that might be an aha moment for Mueller or, heck, for even this matter, the Southern District of New York U.S. Attorney? Uh, not having read the whole book, I, I tend to agree with Alan. You know, there was a lot of, you know, pseudo salacious gossip, but stuff that we sort of had already ascertained based on Comey's previous testimony before, um, before Congress and, you know, some of the previews for this book. So, no, and I think that if there really was some um, truly aha or kind of uh, incriminator compelling evidence, Comey would have uh, testified to that separately to the, the special counsel. And so I don't think that anything that, that that sensitive would be disclosed in a public interview. So, no, I think this was, you know, to Alan's point, more of an exercise in selling books and sort of capitalizing on his 15 minutes. Uh, Dan Lipner, is, is this the last we're going to see of James Comey, or does James Comey still play a pivotal role uh, in anything coming out of the special counsel's office? I mean, Comey could still play the role of the actor reading lines. So uh, let's be clear. He is not J. Edgar Hoover. He did not have his own secret files, as far as we know, unless it's the chapter of the uh, – We lost. Last year there, Dan. He could be. Yeah, yeah we're, losing, we're losing Dan. Hey, Dan, I, I want to go ahead and dial back in, and we'll bring you back in on the next segment. Uh, I think we got a bad connection there. So right. uh, let, let's, let's talk about um, – uh, well, let me ask this question to Sharon. Well, Sharon, is this the last that we see of James Comey? No, I mean, he's still got a book to promote. He's going to be around for another no. three weeks at least. Does he still have a pivotal role to play with anything coming out of the special counsel's office? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think that whatever he had to give, he gave already. Alan Moore, you agree? I do. Yep, Sharma is okay. 100% right, in my opinion. 
Okay. Very good. Uh, let's uh, let's take a break real quick. Uh, regather I, and to the audience that are listening live. Apologize for some of the audio difficulties we're having. I know that we're talking over each other. We've got uh, all kinds of uh, audio issues that we're trying to rectify here. Uh, we'll get them fixed, and hopefully we'll have them fixed uh, for next week. But uh, in the meantime, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, everything from Syria to Paul Ryan announcing that he's stepping down to all kinds of uh, other things, including the Trump administration taking a new look at TPP, which I just scratched my head. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. We will be back in three minutes. Stay with us, everybody.
you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics live from the National Capital Region and on Blog Talk Radio. I am your host, Monday, Justin Russell. Joining me as I do every Tuesday, Dan Lipner, Sharma Achari, and the Honorable Alan Moore. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, lots of other news that we've got to get into over the next uh, 16 minutes or so. Uh, one of the things that we've got to talk about is while all of this Cohen and Comey back and forth and legal issues and looks like Trump's going to have the worst week ever. Uh, The president at nine o'clock on Friday announces that he is in fact uh, in coordination with the British ministry of defense and the French defense ministry. They announced that they have in fact began targeted attacks on Syrian military assets inside Syria. Uh, the attack, which included both uh, aerial-based munitions and uh, cruise missiles based on naval assets in the Mediterranean, uh, it was very it was very strategic. It appears it looks to be a one and done, but it was ideally pressed as a notice to Syrian President uh, uh, Bashar al-Assad that. When you gas your people, there's going to be ramifications. Um, However, one of the things that everybody's taken away from this is the fact that on Friday night, after the president, at about two minutes after 9 p.m. Eastern time, gave his speech, the Pentagon gave a speech that was somewhat diametrically different from the message coming out of the president. During the 9 o'clock address, the president said, hey, this is going to keep on going. This is a sustainable uh, a sustainable attack, and it's going to continue to rain hell fury on Assad. And the Secretary of Defense and Defense uh, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the uh, Office of Public Affairs at the Defense Department said, ah, this is a one and done, which had a lot of people, including staffers in the White House, members of the military, and our allies scratching their head. Let's talk about first the attack itself. 
Alan Moore was this attack a smart move at the right time, and was it justified for what Assad did? Well, it was certainly justified. Um, I just wish that it was part of a larger strategy that had some coherence, some logic, some buy-in from uh, senior uh, foreign policy members of this administration, Congress, uh, and, and outside. I think the president was was so anxious to separate himself from uh, the the history of President Obama drawing a red line and then basically saying, oh, never mind. Um, uh, and uh, so we're going to get a little bit tough. This is the second time this has happened now. Um, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to do some damage. It will be controlled. It'll be marginal. We're not going to try to kill people. We're certainly going to try to not kill Russians and for that matter, Iranians. Um, for all I know, we even passed the word, uh, you might want to clear people out of these areas. I'm not saying that happened, but there were some reports that the Russians uh, moved some people. Um, it, 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 I just wish that, A, we had some, there was a sense that, that we were working on a coherent policy that could be explained, described, understood, uh, and, and bought in. Uh, and secondly, it does trouble me that, we say, if you harm women, children, uh, and innocents with chemical weapons, are going to we're going to respond, we're going to retaliate, we're going to do harm. If you just kill them, torture them, harm them, destroy their homes, force them by the millions to leave Syria, we're going to complain, but we're not going to retaliate. We only retaliate for chemical weapons. I mean, there's a certain sadness and absurdity uh, to that. Not that I have an answer, but uh, it 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 eats at me too. Killing is fine. Killing of innocent women and children, fine. Just not with chemical weapons. Did it, Alan Moore, did it surprise you that Germany? who is largely seen as being the uh, kind of the matriarch or the patriarch of where Europe kind of goes, didn't participate. I, I'm sorry. I, I had my phone. My, my other phone was ringing. Could you repeat your question? Were you surprised that uh, Germany did not participate as part of this coalition? You know, a little bit, because we we have at, at least, <laughs> and thank you for reminding us about a, a coalition. Who knew that that, uh, that that America was ever going to try to join with with allies again and do something in concert? The fact that that Britain and France joined and Germany didn't was concerning to me. I what what it suggests to me is one of two things: e- either uh, we didn't. We were in a hurry, and we didn't take the time to satisfy the Germans' concerns, or that the Germans just decided to take a, a completely different tack for for reasons that are that are not yet understood. I, I would like to have. I would like to have seen us 
with a, a, a larger coalition. Having said that, um, it may be that Germany said, you guys need to go ahead. Don't wait for us. If, if we ever join, it's going to be well down the road. But, but sometimes you, you really do have to act uh, in the moment. In the, in the I mean, moment, but not the immediate moment, not the middle of the night, call up your people and say, attack, have some meetings, have some conversations with our allies. It was really important that, 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 uh, that the U.K. and, and, and France were, were part of this. Really important. I mean, arguably, the French were quarterbacking this. What's that? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Is it arguably the French were quarterbacking this uh, this attack? Wait, we were leading from behind. We we, we we there's there's been some there's been some uh, speculation that this in fact was uh, an idea passed on from French President Macron to Trump. Excuse me, and and Donald Trump said, "Yeah, you know what? You're right. Let's go ahead." There's been some there's been some speculation on that. I have not talked to anybody that said uh, or has confirmed that at all. Um, but the, I, I do want to ask this one question before we get into the politics of this. Um, Sharmila, Charlie, let me ask you: Can uh, can we read into the underlying message the fact that Germany did not participate, or are we reading too much into it? To be honest, I don't know. I think, you know, President Trump has done an outstanding job of alienating a lot of world leaders, including Angela Merkel. And so there could be something more to the story, or it could be, you know, as Alan said, that the Germans were not prepared or had some reservations that the U.S. didn't feel like it could timely address. And so the strike was carried out without their participation. I, I think, you know, there needs to be more reporting and more concrete facts around their lack of participation to be able to give a, a firm answer to that question. Now, now I, I mean, will, not the least of which would be that the Germans might not have the kind of weaponry to do that kind of offensive projection. Uh, I mean, Syria is not exactly next door, so it, it, right. it could be that simple. Um, Dan Lipner, while I've got you on, let's talk about the politics of this. Uh, is, is it a coincidence that literally within a week of former UN ambassador and newly appointed national security advisor John Bolton gets in, we're lighting candles. Is that a coincidence? To say that in the conspiracy theory that uh, timing the use of chemical weapons so we could respond and, and Bolton, a hawk, could flex his muscle, yeah, that's a little hard to swallow. Uh, the, the the bigger issue is whether or not the White House should have sought congressional approval uh, for these actions, considering I doubt this is going to be the last time uh, we talk about Syria on this show or U.S. military forces projected there. So uh, I'm, I'm comfortable saying that maybe Congress needs to, to act on this a little more definitively. Hey, Alan, Alan Moore, I mean, is this because I will tell you there I've talked to a couple of people that are in the Pentagon and uh, there is some can not so much concern, but a little uneasy feeling that this was kind of Russian. I'm not saying it's a conspiracy theory, but it's no secret that John Bolton is, in fact, a hawk. He's been very hawkish. He's been 
very much hawkish on the idea of using chemical weapons on its own people. Um, but as late as Friday afternoon, uh, several folks were inside the National Security Staff offices in the uh, old executive building. They were just kind of going, nothing to see here, nothing to see here. Some were speculating that this was a decision made by John Bolton directly to the president, and the president gave the order, that there wasn't a lot of coordination so, with yeah, I'm not. I'm team. not buying that at all. I, I think that I think that that uh, that hawkish as Bolton has been in some instances in our history, you know, highly notably, Syria is not a place that he has been hawkish. Syria is a place where he, for I think a couple of years, has been saying, "Stay out of Syria. Don't go into Syria." He he's not a hawk. In, in, in every instance at all, I think there was more surprise that he appeared to 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 change his his views of recent history in and be part of a decision to go take this action. So you can't lay this one. I mean, if you can lay this one on Bolton, then then Bolton is as fickle uh, uh, as. Uh, uh, as our president, I, I think that this is a case where uh, where Bolton, who no one accuses of being stupid, okay, um, unlike some people who are at the table, um, uh, looked at all of the circumstances, all of the evidence, the history of the 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 perceived weakness of President Obama when he drew his red line and then did nothing. Um, so. There's a lot of calculus that goes into these kinds of decisions, uh, and and uh, I think the desire to 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 be uh, forceful uh, and and the, to separate yourself from uh, President Obama and to find a couple of allies uh, and not force ourselves down uh, a path that we can't extract ourselves from, kind of a one-off uh, uh, incident sort of fit fit the circumstance. I just wish that I thought that it fit into a longer term strategy or even a process leading to a strategy as opposed to simply reacting to the events of the day and finding this ever moving line of what is so offensive that we can't stand it, even while generally grotesquely offensive behavior affecting millions of people is uh, is something we just wring our hands over. Sharmila, is is there should there be concern? I mean, we we can dive deep into you know the, the wag the dog aspect of this and and all that other nonsense. And I don't want to I don't want to do that. I, I still have some resemblance of hope that that's not the case here. Um, but when we look at the attack itself, as measured as it was, when you got Russia behind you, did, did we really do anything to really change the narrative in Syria on this attack? I, I don't think so. I think that the you know the long term narrative is still incredibly sad for the Syrian people, and so. Um, I don't think that, again, one sort of limited airstrike is going to do much to deter Assad from the atrocities that he's already committed against his own people. I think that you need, and, and especially when you have really conflicting messages coming out of the White House, because wasn't it just two weeks ago that the president said, we're going to be out of Syria in two years? 
and you know came up with a strategy to to get troops out of there. So I think that you know until you have a president and you know an administration and perhaps the addition of Bolton could be a helpful could be helpful in this regard. But until you have an administration that's willing to commit to a real strategy in Syria and not just kind of make these ad hoc decisions. Okay, one day we're doing a strike. One day we're you know, the White House is saying one thing, the Pentagon saying another thing. One day we're saying that we're going to be out of here in two years. One day we're saying, you know, no, we're, we're committed to bringing Assad to justice. You need to have a cohesive strategy for, for Syria. And until you have that, until you show real commitment, until you can build a coalition around that, there's not going to be any meaningful change. Dan Lipner, does having does our attack on Syria, and I mean, let's be honest. I mean, they were showing live pictures of, of the missiles coming into uh, the military regions outside of Damascus, and all the lights were on. People were driving around. Uh, there were even protests the next day with all electricity on. Does an attack like this, in particular with the fact that you've got Vladimir Putin and the Russians behind you, does this attack? deter or does it actually embolden al-Assad? Neither. So if if this attack helps solidify or reinstate the norm that you don't use chemical weapons, especially on civilians, I'll take that as a win. However, everything else, not so much. It doesn't really accomplish anything as far as uh, a is right, as, as far as a cohesive strategy on the ground, but I don't know what that looks like, and nobody seems to know what that looks like because a whole mess of bad options. And the the bigger takeaway out of out of the uh, the bombing of Syria was the protests protests that were prompted in Iraq. That's the thing that kind of caught my attention. And uh, the country that actually has, uh, shall we say, a recent memory of the U.S. getting involved with their country and the outcome not exactly being wonderful. So uh, that that was kind of an interesting side note on the uh, Syria bombing. But as a a long-term gain, again, the only thing that, that we can hope for is maybe it gets chemical weapons off the playing field. Maybe. The... Alan Moore, do you agree with Dan Lipner? Yeah, I do. You do. You don't. Does does this put a, you know does does our attack on Syria continue to freeze out relations between uh, Washington and Moscow? Well, it certainly it. it, it there are other issues between us and Moscow that are that are more problematic uh, right now. Um, the 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 ongoing on again off again question of what Russia did and did not do during our election and what we're trying to do about it. We're finally beginning to show some signs of trying to 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 push back in that regard. Uh, and then the uh, the 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 issue of the poisoning of the former Russia. Uh, turncoat spy in England and his daughter um, that led to the expulsion in, in, from America of 50 Russian uh, staff at the uh, Russian embassy and, and, and consulate out in, in Seattle, followed by 
an, an equal proportionate response uh, from the Russians. Those are actually, in terms of the relationship with Russia, uh, uh, a bigger deal. I think that, sadly, in Syria, uh, I sort of agree with Dan that that it may make uh, it, it may make them be a lot more careful about if and when they use chemical weapons. We don't know whether this was something that President Assad ordered up or whether there's just some authority out there among uh, his colonels and, and, and generals to use what's necessary to get the job done. And it's, you know, it's not inconceivable that somebody says, let's throw some of that chlorine gas in there and get this thing done once and for all. Um, but, but they, <laughs> that's a line that's been drawn before. It's a line now that's triggered some response. If you're the, 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 if you're Assad, maybe you say, you know, it's probably not worth it. And, pro- and I'm not guessing the, the Russians are saying, for God's sakes, you guys have a free hand to kill galore. You can just, you can destroy and kill and murder. Just don't use chlorine. You're going to, you're going to get the Americans, the French, the, the, the British and, and, and people from all over the world condemning you for God's sakes, you've got such a free hand. Don't mess it up. Sadly, I say that. Uh, the, the bottom line here is, uh, are we any closer to having a solution for the Syrian question? Alan Moore? Nope. Dan Lipner? Absolutely not. Charmla? Sadly, I agree with my, my colleagues. Okay, let's let's move on. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, late last week, the Speaker of the House and the uh, Congressman representing Wisconsin's second congressional district announced that he is leaving his position after the after his term and after the end of this Congress. Not only will he be leaving as the Speaker of the House, but he's going to be leaving Congress entirely. He is calling it a day, which has spun up the Republicans and spun up the Democrats and spun up speculation throughout the national capital region, throughout the nation's capital, and nationwide as far as what happened, why is it happening, and what's happening next. Let's start with the the what happened. Um, Paul Ryan the Speaker of the House from Wisconsin, from the great cheese state of Washington, uh, Wisconsin, said that he pretty much, his father died at a young age. He uh, has a close relationship with his family. He realized that his kids were growing up without him. And he, as he quotes, uh, to quote Paul Ryan, didn't want to be a, quote-unquote, weekend dad. Uh, he is uh, very humble or you know, takes takes great care about uh, trying to balance his work life and his family life, and his family is very important to him, as he's noted in uh, any as anybody who knows him or as you've read in any interviews with him, he, he takes his he's very very close to his family, takes his family very uh, family responsibilities very seriously. Um, it was largely unexpected. Some inside the Republican Republican ranks 
and the Capitol had been hearing some buzz about it, but it was largely unexpected uh, and largely a surprise to not only Republicans but to Democrats, obviously, as well. The big question here is, why now? Why now? So I will start, Alan Moore, why now? I... I, I have not talked to him uh, about timing. Um, it, it is coming on to the time where uh, people are going to have to file. And so if you're, if you're not going to run, uh, that's going to become obvious. I don't, I, have, I, don't, I don't know the filing dates uh, in Wisconsin. Um, but I think he felt that uh, having made the decision, um, it was uh, it was the right thing to do for colleagues, um, and uh, uh, I I think this is a case where, uh, and we've all been in things in our lives. This is what I'm going to do now. Do I sit on it, or do? And sometimes you do. You you try to time it right, but. Um, or do I go ahead and, and, and make that clear? There's some freedom associated, as we've seen with others who have decided not to run in 2018 on both the Senate and the House side. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that it's a little bit of a favor uh, to his colleagues. Now, there are those who say, well, you become a lame duck. Why don't you step aside? Let the succession follow. Yeah, fine. Um, it's it's not like me or Steve Scalise, Kevin McCarthy or Steve Scalise, the two acknowledged candidates um, with a possible addition of, of uh, uh, this Freedom Caucus, uh, Jim Jordan. Um, mm-hmm. But, but uh, they don't need to beat each other up now uh, and, and, and try to be elected in a week or a, or, or a few weeks. Uh, Ryan can adjust things. He can try to create a, as smooth a transition as possible. Uh, try to get some things done. Uh, you'll have some freedom from uh, having to always be the president's guy, something that you have to believe if you watch him, that he is chafed under, and he's chafed under, this, uh, under the criticism. And it's possible that his children out in Wisconsin uh, hear about stuff, and he thinks, you know, I want to go be a dad. As he, as he said in his statement, I don't want to wake up a few years from now and realize that I've missed their school years and their teenage years, um, and, uh, and and suddenly they're in college and gone. And and I was uh, I was there sometimes on weekends, and it's a powerful draw, especially when you're doing a job that you didn't seek, you didn't particularly want, and you don't enjoy. And he's not great at it, guy. He was the consensus uh, alternative when John Boehner stepped down, but it wasn't because. He wanted the job. It's because the people who wanted it didn't have the support. So the the, the leaders in the house came to him and said, "You got to do this, Paul. You're the guy. You've got to do it." And I think there was a sense of duty involved. That ego too. Let's acknowledge. But but it was not his passion. He would rather have been chairing a committee that was uh, that was running well, some major always, policy I stuff. I mean, any anybody who knows uh, Paul Ryan. And, will tell you that, you know, he his dream job, all he wanted to be was chairman of Ways and Means. That's all he wanted to be. Uh, he was a very reluctant speaker. He never wanted the job, and he never wanted the job when they first approached him with it. So, 
you know, in Dan Lipner, when we look at Ryan's departure and how this is all playing out, you know, we look at how uh, John Boehner was basically kicked out and, and just rolled over by his own party in large part, uh, which, you know, many who were supportive of John Boehner thought was just, you know, the, the optics and the actual way they did it was horrible. But if you look at the way that uh, this is coming around with Paul Ryan, do you get the sense that maybe there was some pressure for Ryan to step back, not only because of the fact that he's got a pretty tight Democratic challenger coming up on him in his own district, but also with the fact that there are some challenges coming around with him being openly supportive of the president on many items? So there are a few parts to that. So let me start off by saying that Paul Ryan, the human being, the person, the father, I have no reason to think that he's making that up. Ever, Even when he took the job as Speaker of the House, he said he wasn't going to do weekend fundraising trips because he wanted to spend time with his family. That was from the get-go. Uh, consistently absent a, a, a couple of, of – of political missteps on things that he said as far as makers versus takers. And even that he took back, he's been, he's been a pretty decent human being at, at that level in both himself and how he's held himself out politically. Now his actual job in politics, that's a different series of, of, of issues. He's been a budget hawk and produced nothing but deficit spending each time as Speaker of the House. And while the White House was held by George W. Bush. Okay, so that's a failure. We have the the fact that he was an accidental speaker in the worst job in politics right now, which is the being Republican Speaker of the House. Speaker of the House, Republican Speaker of the House. Because you have have the lunatic fringe that make building a consensus on actual policy almost impossible. And that was what forced Boehner out. And while Paul Ryan was the consensus alternative, as Alan correctly said, he wasn't able to get much done other than this tax bill that went through, which did nothing to solidify his, his own position on, uh, on being a, being reasonable and thoughtful on a balanced budget and maybe doing away with uh, deficits and was seen by many as a wildly unpopular giveaway to the rich. And add to that the having to carry the water for a, a president of the United States he doesn't see eye to eye with and not doing a terribly stand-up job pushing back against some of the more horrific things Donald Trump has spoken to or even done where the House of Representatives actually could take steps to to challenge, uh, not the least of which are some of these trade steps that the president has started to put in place. So Paul Ryan, yeah, is in a tough place, but is not exactly leaving as a profile in political courage. Sharmila, is, is Paul Ryan cutting his potential short by leaving so soon uh, or is this maybe a way that he can now speak his mind regarding the president speak his mind regarding the direction of the country and who knows even set himself up for something down the road 
Charmla? I think we lost Charmla. We did. Uh, Alan Moore, I'll pose that question to you. Repeat the question, please. Is, is, is this a matter of, you know, when we look at, when we look at Paul Ryan, uh, you know, when we look at him, you know, is he departing too soon? Is this going to affect his legacy? Or is this going to allow him to speak truly his mind? Uh, you know, he, prior to the election, he was not really on board with the possibility of a Trump presidency. Uh, does this give him the opportunity to kind of relax, spend time with his family, but also speak his real mind and his real thought process and maybe set him up for something well, in the future? Yeah, not not until he's actually gone. I, I don't see Paul Ryan doing what we've seen with a few other members, uh, particularly on the Senate side, um, uh, the, the Jeff Flakes uh, of the world who are just enormously frustrated with this president um, and then announced that they weren't going to run and then started using their freedom and the, and the fact that they still had a, a, a platform from which to speak and be heard um, to, to be uh, critical of the president. I don't see that happening uh, with Paul Ryan, not while he's serving as speaker. Um, uh, I do think that once he's gone, you know, after the 2018 elections, when uh, <laughs> Likely, uh, we'll have a, a a speaker who's a Democrat. Um, uh, I could see Paul Ryan having been a witness to history, a participant in history, um, a, a, a person who is trying to figure out what to do next to to give him some of what he's been missing, um, but also um, uh, some some. Uh, some financial reward, if you will, at a at, during a window of opportunity, um, I could see him writing his own book, um, and a Paul Ryan book would be an interesting read. It's not it, everybody out there is not going to have a, a bestseller, but but a Paul Ryan uh, book could uh, could do reasonably well. Um, what he, he's he's in a dilemma that any of them face. He's he's a young guy. He was. Of course, a candidate for vice president. Uh, his name will continue to sort of float around out there until he figures out what he's going to do next, and maybe he'll be, uh, uh, maybe he'll run for office. Uh, maybe he'll be a, try to be a well, university let me president. Can we just touch on the fact that being freed up to speak involves leaving office? That's kind of a thing there. The Speaker of the House is not just a position. It's an enormously powerful position. It's not just you carry water for the, for the President of the United States if he happens to be a member of your party. So all these Republicans that are leaving Dodge as opposed to standing up to the President, that's not exactly courageous. So that's, well, let me, that's all on, really Dan, a point on, that needs to be well, looked into. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me, I want to jump in on this. Let me respond to that. Okay. No, because I was going to respond to that one. I want to respond to that one real quick because, you know, the thing about it is, number one, uh, you know, there is a, there's a certain decorum. Paul Ryan has never been one to actively seek out the spotlight. He is no Chuck Schumer. Where the most dangerous, you know, the most dangerous place between him and a camera in Washington. The reality is, is I don't think Paul Ryan is going or is of the mindset or of the style 
to go out and do damage as he's walking out the door to not only the office of the president, but his own party. And I think that that is a step. I think that that just shows class. I think that shows statesmanship. And where does the country fall in that hierarchy? The the, the, the country, look, he's already put, Paul Ryan has already put country before everything else when he agreed to take the speaker's role. Reluctantly, and, and nobody can discount the fact, everybody in this town knows that he did that very reluctantly. It did not want the job, but he was the only one that had the While credibility Barack and the Obama was to do president. It. When it came time to saying. lead, when they also have the White House and a and president what, of his own party, he's leaving. He's got. He look. He is leaving out the door. He is going to do it with respect to, and him being a lifelong Republican, I can't blame him. Look, nobody's a bigger critic of their own party than most of us on this show, including me. And the reality is, you know, we are not in the role of Speaker of the House. Paul Ryan's never been one to kind of shy away from criticizing the president. There's been numerous times where he has. But for him to go and light the barn on fire as he's walking out the door, is just that's not his style, and I think that that's uh, that's that, that, that's a true statesman doing that. I think that if 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 you have the Speaker of the House, if you're the Speaker of the House in the same party as the President, and you start pouring fuel on an already ignitable fire, do is not only do damage to your own party, which you don't want to do, but it's going to do damage to the country. It's going to create a bigger divide and a bigger, more angry political scene in in what's already a venomous situation in politics as it is. A statesman could very civilly have brought, and still can, by the way, bring to the House floor legislation that is floating around the Senate, legislation to protect Robert Mueller's job. It, but, he, but here's the thing. You don't need to set the world ablaze. You can simply legislatively make it impossible for the president to remove him. That could Alan, be Alan, what we But Alan, I get really tired of, of us outsiders who don't run for public office um, showing outrage and calling, calling cowardice and a lack of moral leadership um, politicians who make decisions based on their assessment of the country, presidency, of their constituency, of their future. Um, and, and, and I, for one, I mean, I've observed all of the, the trash that people have thrown at Ryan, the good riddance, uh, the, the gutless wonder. And even as I, with, from my own experience, what I would watch when he would say, uh, in his own quiet, gentle way, of pushing push the president back, and I thought that's not easy for him to do. And does that make up mean I'm right and everybody else is wrong? No, but but this is a this is a tough, difficult, challenging business. Yeah. Now, some of us think that the <laughs> that the whole country is 
is at significant risk because of this chaos presidency. And so I get when somebody says, in the midst of all of this, how can you stand aside and be quiet? And I say, well, I see people speaking up in a lot of different ways, and in, including Paul Ryan. So I'm, I don't think he's the kind of, he doesn't want the job. I take him at his word. Um, in, in terms of, of Dan's suggestion, well, then why doesn't he protect Mueller? Well, we can talk about that whole issue. Um, there's a, a little problem in passing legislation through the United States Senate and then getting a president to sign it um, as opposed to veto it. Um, and yeah. what uh, Republicans would do, it's not some little slam dunk, simple, where's the courage? I think that stuff that members of the Senate in particular have said about Mueller is hugely significant, hugely significant. When, when Chuck Grassley said doing that would be suicide, that's Chuck Grassley, chairman of the judiciary. The, it's, not just, it's not just Lindsey Graham, who's been very outspoken. Mitch McConnell and others. I don't think they should try to pass that law. I think it would become a huge distraction. We can debate that, but to use that as the measure of courage seems to me to uh, to be off the mark and and sort of our outside observer arrogance on what our own personal preference the measurement is of what these people should do. A cop yeah, on the beat who has a badge and a gun who sees a crime and says, you know, somebody ought to do something about that. Yep, they're showing courage and speaking to the problem. But when they're actually equipped to do something about it and don't, that's a problematic thing. Well, you're saying they're equipped. Wait, 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 really wait. as simple as you suggest. Yeah, and, and I, I got to agree with Alan on this one, Dan. Dan we are know, I, with I, our I, words. We are commentators Somebody in elected office has a different ability. In the political arena, you've supported politicians at the highest level. You were an operative for the former vice president and former senior senator from Delaware. You know how the game is played. What's shocking to me about this dialogue is that, you know, one could say the same thing about Joe Biden. Joe Biden didn't show any political courage when we needed him to stand up because everybody in the political circles of Washington and everybody in the country knew that Hillary Clinton was the worst candidate ever. We all knew she was a horrible candidate even before she announced because we saw it in 2008. Why didn't Joe Biden show political courage in, in stepping up? He would have probably beaten Donald Trump, and we would have been in a better place. But he walked away from us. You're talking about the campaign. I'm talking about somebody who's actually in office, who's already been blessed with the position. And the Speaker of the House is enormously powerful. The Speaker of the House is arguably the second most powerful position in Washington. He was – Joe Biden was the vice president of the United States, the second most powerful person in the free world, and was running for – to be the and would have run to be the most powerful. Constitutionally, what, me, the, Dan, constitutionally what can the vice president do? The, oh, come on, Dan. Don't be naive. Come <laughs> no, on, Dan. I, 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 I'm talking the difference between rhetoric and action. 
constitutionally, what can the Vice President of the United States do? Can the Vice President Daniel, order a missile strike? President pass legislation Daniel J. Whitner. Daniel J. Whitner, you know for a fact. You know for a fact. I don't know who has the Daniel initial, by the way. What's that? Oh, I thought it was Daniel J. Oh, it should be, damn it. Daniel Whitner, <laughs> you should know. You know for a fact that when Joe Biden opened his mouth, People in the Democratic Party and people on the Hill listened. He was not the figurehead vice president that everybody thought. He was a he was a active counsel to President Obama. He was you are, a you, you, leader. And I, 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 I am rejecting this completing campaigning with legislating. These are different tasks. Oh, well, man, pick a piece on. of legislation that might actually succeed, Dan, instead of just divide. You, you're, you're going way down the road here on this try to protect Mueller, which, I, you know, there, there's a whole other school of thought which suggests let the president fire Mueller and create a constitutional crisis and maybe we'll get him out of here sooner. And, oh, by the way, so, you have the chairman of judiciary who would have been the uh, – who would have been – involved in any sort of uh, punitive action against the president, as chairman of judiciary, he said that would be suicide. That's not a good sign. I think there's enough people on the Hill that know that if Trump does get a crazy notion to fire either Mueller or Rosenstein or both, we don't need a law to protect them. If he does it, he's done his own hole at that point, we can't protect them anymore. Let the chips fall where they may. Why do that? Why put a piece of legislation that's going to piss everybody How about off? this? How, how about let's agree that we finish this subject. If we want to have an in-depth conversation about legislation that would protect Robert Mueller, talk about the merits, talk about the process, what the House would have to do, what the Senate would have to do, what the president would have to do, what would, what would be involved in, in – in, in overriding a, a likely presidential veto, then we can have that separate conversation. I think we're, I think we're kind of down a, the, you know, a, 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 a rat hole now. This is my humble opinion, yeah, but, yeah. so I suggest we move yeah, forward. But, yeah, but, but here, here's, the, here's the thing. Let's move uh, on to Scooter Libby. Yeah, I, I was going to do that for you, Dan, but hold on. To Alan's point, um, I've already gotten a couple of texts saying that this is a great debate and it's good radio. So, you know, you know me. I'm basically a ratings guy. Anyway, uh, let's talk about Scooter Libby. Um, suck up to the president. <laughs> let's, okay, where, let's talk about Scooter Libby. Where is his metric? <laughs> let's talk about Scooter Libby. For those of you who don't know, the president last week decided it would be cool to back into the throwback Thursday bin and he pardoned the former chief of staff to then Vice President uh, Dick Cheney. Yes, that's right. We're going all the way back to 2006, 2005, when then chief of staff to the vice president, Scooter Libby, uh, pretty much outed Valerie Plame, who was at that time looked at as kind of a Washington socialite, but also – uh, inside intelligence arenas, she was also known to be a covert operative for the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, when it was popped, when it was popped, when it was breached, 
and uh, a story was published. Uh, eventually, it came out that it was Scooter Libby was the source of the leak, and he was then prosecuted and convicted and did time, I believe, for violations no, he didn't of do the National Security. He, commuted. he, 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 he paid a huge fine. That's right. That's right. He paid the fine and did not. Do, he got commuted, but basically for violations of the National Security Act. Uh, since then, he's uh, since then he is a convicted felon, uh, not able to vote, not able to do a lot of things. Uh, but this week, uh, no, yeah, I don't agree with. Now, I think uh, he had his. He got his. He got his law license back. So anyway, did he? Did he get his law license back too? Yep. yep. Wow. Uh, interesting, but still. It doesn't matter now because guess what? Scooter Libby got pardoned by the President Donald Trump. Uh, which the question I have to ask is because when I saw this hit the news, I was like, why? So I'll start, Alan Morley, start with you with the why. Well, it, it came so out of the blue that it struck me as typical of what. This president does. He'll he'll hear a line of argument. It will attract his gut instinct. It will set him apart a little bit. There will be a way that he can construct the narrative and and be seen as uh, a, a, a aggressive, um, break the mold. Um, and and there 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 was a school of thought. There were a lot of people, starting with Vice President Cheney, who's who 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 left uh, the president the, the vice presidency with uh, and with George Bush um, very distressed that the president that President Bush did not pardon uh, Libby he commuted his sentence but he didn't pardon him so he couldn't practice law he had to pay a two hundred fifty thousand dollar fine um, all for what what uh, Cheney felt was was a mistake made on behalf of the country one could argue about that but he wasn't it wasn't a self enriching Kind of thing. Um, uh, he 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 lied under oath. Um, yeah. I, ironically, about something that that he actually had not done in the first instance. He was not the one who leaked Valerie and, claims. Uh, and by the way, name, but he, the way, but Alan, he did lie about it. But Alan, by the way, this was also the fact that George W. Bush, President, forty third President, did not pardon Scooter Libby has caused a rift and a source of tension and almost an animosity between George Bush and his former vice president that is still to this day there, is what I hear. Yep. Uh, yep. It, yeah, he's I mean, still it, very it was resentful just a, of the film. You know, just one of those things that, that, uh, that, that Cheney would never have gotten over. Um, you know, it wasn't like they were super buddy-buddy anyway, although they were certainly close and, and President Bush relied right. on uh, Cheney. There was a lot of mutual respect there. But, but uh, you know, it, it, what, what was unusual about it is it just sort of popped up, and then it was a done deal, and and it allowed it was a narrative that that the president knew would would have an element of surprise, and that he could say, this should have been done years ago. This was a this was a horrible injustice to a great right. public servant, and now we're fixing it. And people say, wait, Scooter Libby, what again? What was the deal again? And then, what, wait, what was his yeah. role? And what was he charged with? And who told, who was the first person who told Novak, the, the, the writer, that Valerie Plame was a CIA? It actually wasn't even Scooter Libby. 
Um, I mean, there was just lots of it's it's confusing, and and right. Trump can cut right through the confusion. This is what he likes to do, and say, I have corrected an injustice that has gone uncorrected uh, for the last ten years, and I'm happy to do it. And Dan, why are you Dan? Why are you telling a little, me it's very a bit. little pushback? So it, it's the injustice part of the argument that I'm having the most trouble with. The what exactly is the president defending here? The Scooter Libby lying, Scooter Libby coming into the defense of somebody who added uh, an, an intelligence agency resource. Um, what is that there? Since, you know, the 45 has gone out of its way to say, you know, you know, e- emails and things, making sure those are secure, you know, we take that of the utmost importance and those things should be prosecuted. Um, what exactly is this higher principle he's defending? Uh, I mean, Joe Arpaio, the, 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 I believe the president's only other pardon to this point, uh, defend, who uh, was standing in defiance of court orders, by the way. Uh, he was in contempt of court, and uh, the president stepped in there. So what is this higher principle that uh, 45 is, is, is standing for? Uh, there is the theory that he is sending the signal to uh, uh, others of uh, in the uh, Donald Trump gang, uh, the, the the crime family. Uh, he, he's got their back if necessary, and he will go into the wayback machine in order to show that he will do it. Uh, but it, there seems to be no credible argument for this action, which is what's so perplexing. And the. <laughs> It really needs to be spoken to. Now, there also is the other legal argument that people have raised that the full pardon means uh, Scooter Libby can no longer uh, plead the fifth. So, in fact, it could theoretically reopen the investigation as far as who the actual leakers were. That is one school. So we know who the leaker was. Yeah. That that all came out. There's no there's no there's no mystery. Uh, about the first person but, but, who leaked it to now, Novak. Now, but let's be clear, Does, though, is that did, did Scooter Libby violate the National Security Act? Absolutely he did. I'm uh, not sure about that. He was got – they nailed him for lying. Not, what, what, what do you – wasn't what he was charged with both uh, providing false statements to a federal investigation and – also violations of the National Security Act for the dissemination of classified material. Yeah, I think all he, I think what he did was confirm classified in, uh, information. Oh, okay. Because it was okay. I mean, because it was so already long. out there. So it had, it had, yeah, it had come from uh, I'm blanking on his name, the Deputy Secretary of State, the the uh, right uh, Richard Armitage. Armitage was the one who, right. who gave the name to Novak, and, and kind of in a not a hey, don't tell anybody, or this is a huge secret. It was it was supposedly, you know, almost uh, hey, just so you understand the context here, his wife is this, and so right, uh, you know, Novak jumped all over that, got it confirmed, and uh, so I believe I, I would have to go review the history. Um, yeah, uh, I, that, we're, I'm going back a lot as well. Yeah, that you know, I think it was about... if if Bush if Bush had pardoned him. Uh, 11 years, you know, or nine years ago, um, 
it, uh, 10 years ago, we, we wouldn't even be having the conversation. Maybe Bush should have because Scooter Libby, I mean, there were some of these weird extenuating circumstances. The guy had served very honorably. He was, he was disgraced regardless. Um, but the timing is really weird. And, and I, I, I think that Dan's reminder that there's some people who say he might have been sending a signal to others uh, is something to reflect upon. Um, if, you're, yeah. if you're Flynn and you know some stuff, if you're Manafort and you know some stuff and you see the president sort of out of the blue grabbing somebody and saying, let's, uh, let, let's, let's, here, let's, let's pardon this guy. There's actually some people who think it's, the, the, the right and just and correct thing to, to right. do. Um, and it, it might capture the attention of those who, uh, uh, who are out there trying to decide under pressure from uh, Robert Mueller how much to cooperate. Right. Huh. Right. Um, maybe I'll just continue to clam up. I don't know. Well, I the don't big know. difference, it, it, I mean, the, in which case the president the needs difference. to start working getting Ivanka elected governor of New York so that there could be a preemptive pardon there as well. Yeah, I was going to say the one thing that Scooter Libby did not have that these guys do have is an attorney general in Albany, New York, that has paper ready to go should there be a federal pardon. Uh, Scooter Libby didn't have that. But uh, that being said, it is uh, five minutes till the end of the show, and this is a part of the show recently where we've been going around and looking at the Trump administration Deadpool to see who is going to get fired, who has been fired, and see if we can guess who's going to get fired in the upcoming week. Uh, joining us as she does, because she's in charge of the program uh, for the Deadpool segment, is our associate producer, Audrey Howardson. Audrey, how you doing? I'm doing well. Good. First of all, I have to give kudos to Audrey. For those who don't know, Audrey is the author of a new uh, blog post that appears uh, daily on our website, backroompolitics.org. Uh, she is the author of From the Cutting Room Floor, which is kind of a daily recap, kind of a daily cheat sheet of politics that day. Uh, great job on that one, Audrey. Got to give you props for that one. So, yay. Go, uh, go Team Howerton. <laughs> well, thank and you. Second of, <laughs> and second of all, what, who won last week in the White House administration Deadpool? So it's been two weeks, and we have no winners. It's been very quiet over there at the White House. On some really? <laughs> really. Okay. So we had Sharmila. It was assigned for you that you had Betsy DeVos. Ken had John Kelly, <laughs> Dan, Ryan Zinke, Alan, Ben Carson, and Justin Scott Pruitt. And all of those people still have a job to this day in the White House. <laughs> Who wow. made these assignments? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> So wow, okay. Um, Was this a random draw? I don't ever remember picking Ben Carson for anything, (laughs) including the secretary of HUD. So anyway, uh, that being said, let us go. Oh yeah, no, no, you dropped off the air. Yeah, it was selected for you, Alan. You had to leave early, so we selected. Got it. Got it. Uh, Anyway, so you know what? In, In lieu of that, Alan Moore. I will give you, since this is a carryover week, I will give you first dibs. Alan Moore, who's the next to leave the administration? Uh, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll ride with, I'll, I'll put my, I'll keep my money on, uh, on Scott Pruitt at the EPA. 
Okay, you mean you mean Kevlar Kevlar uh, seat covers yeah. not doing it for you? <laughs> it, it, yeah. it doesn't count yeah. if he's disappointed at AG. What's that? It doesn't count if he's just elevated to AG. I agree. Uh, uh, I agree. Yeah, that, 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 that's yeah. that's worse than losing. Yeah. Dan, yeah. <laughs> look at who you pick. I think in, uh, in in terms of the seeing the Speaker of the House leave town because he has kids he wants to spend time with, uh, this woman decides she has young children and this job just ain't worth it, I think Sarah Huckabee will say goodbye. Really? Ooh, hmm. Ooh interesting. There's a dark horse. Uh, I got to think about this. I got I to gotta think about this. Um. Whew. I am. I, you know what? I, I, I got to tell you something. There's there's been some buzz around it, and in the last, I think uh, I think it could be Ivanka. I think Ivanka goes back to New York. So <laughs> not without Jared. <laughs> Jared. <laughs> Jared may have his own problems from what I'm hearing. But uh, I'm saying Ivanka may be going back to New York. And if Ivanka goes, so does Jared. You know, one thing we if, – if they if, if they stop the, the massive hemorrhage of people, we might want to think of – there's, a, there's another, another weekly thing we could have is who will be the main target of the president's anger and Twitter's this week? And and one oh, candidate might targeting. be for this coming week is oh. Neil Gorsuch, because oh, yeah. Gorsuch just cast the deciding vote in an immigration case that that went against what the administration was 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 hoping for. Making Where's the loyalty to to deport uh, uh, undocumented immigrants? So hey, okay, anyhow. you know what, Audrey, Audrey, consider that starting next week we may do Twitter targeting instead of Deadpool. We'll talk about. It. We've only got sixty seconds left. On behalf of Alan Moore, Dan Littner, Sharma Shari, uh, Admiral Ken, who was not able to join us, I'm your host, moderator, Justin Russell. Special thanks, as always, to our associate producer, Audrey Howerton. You can follow us on uh, the web, www.backroompolitics.org. Follow us on Twitter, at backroompolitics. Or you can follow us on Facebook, at facebook.com slash backroompoliticsradio. Have a great week, America. Bye-bye. This is Backroom Politics.